Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Message this morning is called The Triumph of Beauty. The Triumph of Beauty. The glory of the church at the end of the age. I just want to pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your kind, wise, but jealous leadership. You are relentless in your joyful jealousy over who we are to be in the days ahead. God, we're asking that you would help us, that you would align us in all the areas in which we're out of alignment. Align us with your perspective, your heart. We want to be your voice and your hands and your feet in the days ahead. I'm asking, Lord, that you would increase the spirit of wisdom and revelation, greater clarity and understanding that aligns our families and aligns our children, our grandchildren. God, we're asking that you would do a work in our midst and beyond in this city that's so clearly you. In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, I, I really appreciate it with what Mike said. Particularly the issue of small J, capital J, justice. Yeah, I am a, I'm troubled. <laughs> I'm so troubled. We're in a troubling and uncertain time in our nation. As was said earlier, there can be no going back. I'm very convinced. There can be no going back. What's happened the last week the things that have unfolded, the way they've unfolded, there's no going back. Whatever political viewpoint one holds, everyone can see that. We have crossed a threshold of anger, mistrust, suspicion that's somehow beyond the last 20 years and the last four years. The events of the last four years took to another level a new expression of an accusation culture. I love that, that Mike and Isaac and others have been talking about the coming betrayal culture. I want to talk a little bit this morning about the triumph of beauty related to the accusation culture. The betrayal culture is the child of, a, of an accusation culture. The accusation culture of our nation that's going to increase. Before there's betrayal, and then what follows betrayal, which is much more sobering. Prior to betrayal, and then after that, the fruit of betrayal, which Jesus was very clear about, the book of Revelation is very clear about. There's the accusation culture, and that's where I believe the Lord is speaking to us in this season as a people one side right now is expressing their shock and their horror at half the country. How dare you vote for that candidate? Labeling them as enablers, perpetuators of a racist and destructive administration. And there's threats, there's noise of recrimination, revenge, further consequences. If you align with them, there will be consequences. That's the increase of accusation and betrayal right before our eyes. If you align with them, there will be consequences. Initially social, but then economic, and then beyond. 
That's what we're girding ourselves for. Again, it doesn't matter to me which political side perpetuates those ideas. Any political group, anyone with a measure of power or authority in the system that perpetuates those kinds of ideas, they're speaking right into where this is going and it becomes, in some ways, it's a gift because we can see out in the open. I remember 20 years ago, we used to talk about the media and we used to talk about these kinds of things. Way is way more difficult than it is now to see it. It's like, I think that there's a bias. <laughs> right? I mean, if you remember 20 years ago, there were guys that made millions of dollars on books exposing media bias. And we were like, wow, thank you. I couldn't see it without your help, author. It's 20 years later, and I mean, my nine-year-old's going, they're biased. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> really clear. But it's not just that they're biased. That's, that's old news. It really is. The fact that the media is representing one side of an, a debate, that's old news. It's the empowering of a narrative of consequence if you align with the wrong group. That's where you start going, okay, okay, family, now how do we respond? Being super bold on Facebook is not going to help you with what they are saying is coming in the days ahead. There's a... Absolute, and this is probably one of the most troubling things to me, there is on every side an absolute distrust in institutions that are critical to maintain a healthy democracy. When you arrive at that moment, when there's zero confidence in critical institutions, then the ability to perpetuate a healthy democracy in society becomes very difficult and then you've, you've crossed a threshold. You've crossed a, a point of no return by which it will never be what it was last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. You can't recapture that. You have to gird yourself with sobriety before the Lord with real urgency. And if anything, that's the gift of the hour. We don't like what's unfolding. Whichever team you're on, you don't like what's unfolding, but the gift of urgency is upon us and urgency to respond biblically. It's our only way forward. It's the only way to prepare our families for the days ahead. Wherever, I always have to say at least one super controversial thing that makes people mad at me every sermon. It's a, I have a quota. I don't know if you know that. I'm always going to bother somebody. I apologize. Not really. <laughs> when it, wherever one stands on conspiracies and their truthfulness, wherever you stand, and we as a body, as a family, as our beautiful family, we represent the spectrum. That's the glory of IHOPKC. We represent the spectrum. Wherever you stand, here's where we want to align. We as believers know from the prophetic scriptures, there is a controversy unfolding. Let us settle that issue. Wherever you are at on the issue of conspiracy, there is a conspiracy. I just want to definitively say 
from the word of God of the prophetic scriptures, there is a conspiracy. There is. End of discussion. There is an agenda. It is driven by a being named Satan. He has a satanic strategy. There are humans that are very cooperative with that strategy because of their own self-interest and personal gain. The conspiracy is called, I have power, I'd like to keep it. That's the conspiracy. It's not, again, as the days are unfolding, that which was backroom conspiracy. I remember Jill Austin years ago gave us a prophetic picture that the Lord gave her of leaders and you know, economic powers and kings and prime ministers in a back room with a conspiracy. Those days are gone. It's not a conspiracy anymore. The conspiracy's right there for all to see. We have power. We'd like to keep it. That's it. That's, that's, it's very simple. It's not complex in terms of motivations. It's not hard to see what, what people are after. We have the power. We want the world to be this way. We'd like to keep the power to make the world this way. Not your way. Really simple. We must not be surprised in the days ahead as the harlot Babylon conspiracy, Revelation 17 and 18. And the Lord made it plain and clear before they did. The Lord told us this 2,000 years ago. This is old news to us. When I hear news of global forces meeting together and openly advocating for a change in the global economic system, I go, oh, that's Revelation 18. You guys are right on time. It will become even clearer as the enemies of God because what's happening is the enemies of God, they're being helpful to us related to urgency and intercession because they're becoming more brazen. They're becoming more bold. As they become more self-righteous, they become more brazen. As they become more convinced that their way is the way for the earth, they're not going to apologize for it anymore. And as soon as they feel like they have the upper hand, they're not going to hide it. It's becoming so much more clear. We're in the early days of acceleration towards an appointed end. The the appointed end has been unfolding for a while. We're in the early days of acceleration. There's a little phrase in Revelation 4, verse 1. The Lord calls John up to show him what's going to happen. And he says, I'm going to show you, John, the things that must take place. Now, when the Lord says these things must take place, he's not wanting the church to surrender to prophetic inevitability or prophetic fatalism. That's not the point. We don't just resign ourselves. Oh, well, it's going to be bad, so we'll just hand it over. The Lord's not saying this must happen, therefore be passive, The Lord's saying, no, it's the opposite. This must happen, but it must happen because I am coming. And it must happen because 2 Thessalonians 3, there are wicked and unreasonable men that don't want me to come. It must happen because I've given men free will. And there are men that have chosen not me, but I am coming and I'm not asking for their vote. The two of us can't occupy the same space without one repenting. And I, the Lord, am not going to repent. Therefore, this must happen as a king that's going to establish righteousness and as people who are wicked and unreasonable with free will that don't want that righteousness, this is what must happen. But I'm not telling you, says the Lord, what must happen so that you're passive and fatalistic. I'm telling you what must happen so that you're sober, girded, and aggressive in the place of prayer and advancing the kingdom. You're aggressive in evangelism. You're aggressive as my expression of mercy on the earth in this hour of history. 
This must happen, therefore this is who you must be. The jealousy of the Lord is for the church. In light of where this is going, this is who the church must be. His jealousy is for us to be what we are made to be in the hour that's coming. We were made for this hour. Jesus said that the days to come would be like the days of Noah. Matthew 24, 37. The days of Noah. The days of Noah were days in which Genesis 4, 26, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, men who rejected God, who, who declared their statement of intent, this earth that you made, we want it to be ours without you. That's the declaration of man in the early chapters of Genesis. The earth that you made, we want it to be ours without you. We'd love the glory and the blessing of the world that you made, but we want it without the accountability and the boundaries. We don't want to answer to you, but we do want the world you made. So thank you. So we'll take the earth. Could you leave it? But Genesis 4, 26 is when men began to repent and go, no, we don't want a world without God on it. So they began to do burnt offerings and call upon the name of the Lord and invite God to come. That's where man began to ache the loss of God related to this planet. And by loss, I mean the manifest presence, God dwelling here. Man began to say, no, we want you here. We want you here in fullness. That's Genesis 4, 26. We want you here. But the response of other men was to begin to exterminate those who wanted the Lord here. Because there was a group that didn't want the Lord here. And so Genesis 6 is the collision between the last family standing and the rest who do not want God here. That's what the days of Noah are. The days of Noah is the collision, not between God and man, a collision between God and man ends very quickly. The collision that Jesus is advertising in Matthew 24 is the collision between man and his church. God's church, God's people. That's the collision that Jesus is advertising, as in the days of Noah. So shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. There will be a day in which a remnant of faith wants me on the earth, and there will be a day in which many do not. God's answer in mercy to the raging nations and their rejection of him is a glorious church. That's his answer. As the nations shake their fist against the Lord, and Genesis 6 declare, we do not want you here. Right now, the nations are still afforded the luxury of being atheistic until God revives his church. Right now, they shake their fist, in other words, and they look at the church and say, we don't want you here. They don't buy that there's a, the God of Israel standing behind us with a sober determination to establish his kingdom and set his son upon the throne in Zion. They don't see God standing behind us. They just see us and our morality. So they say, we don't want you here. But in the days to come, when God revives his church with signs and wonders, and it's clear that the God of Israel stands behind us, the brazenness of the people will be to look at the God beyond the church and say, we don't want you here. And that's what's stunning about God is that his answer in mercy 
isn't to directly answer them with a, well, no, I'm coming. His answer is kindness and mercy to present to those same nations a revived, glorious, mature church. In other words, here's the kindness of Jesus. Here's the kindness of our Father in heaven. The kindness is man rages against him. We don't want you. We don't want your people. We don't want your way. And he goes, are you sure? Let me make my people look more like me and then tell me. Let me present to you my resume. The God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign king of glory who has all right to do as he pleases still goes, well, let me, let me interview for the job of king of the earth. Like, what? They are unreasonable and wicked. You should just wipe them out. David, read Isaiah 42 and let me do my thing. Okay, nations of the earth, let me show you my resume. Let me show you my handiwork. Let me show you my trophy of grace and the proof that I am who I say that I am. Let me show you the expression and the witness of the truth of what my son is really like as the son displays the father for all humanity. In the latter days, the church will display Jesus for the nations of the earth. That's an unbelievable answer to the rage of the nations. The trophy of his grace put on full display. The beauty of the church. A church unified in love, John 17. A church embodying his beatitudes, Matthew 5, the city on the hill. Embodying his meekness, embodying his mercy, embodying his hunger for righteousness, embodying poverty of spirit and mourning, embodying the peacemaker, operating in his servant's spirit with great humility and a spirit of prayer. We are not that yet, which means that we have an appointment and we're not able to make ourselves into that. The answer to the rage of the nations is us. That's good news and bad news. The answer to the rage of Missouri is the church of Kansas City. The answer to the rage of America is the church of America. That's good news and bad news. It's good news because God is kind and is very committed to put himself on display through his people that he loves, that he loves. Very good news. The bad news is we're not that and we're not able to make ourselves that. Therefore, as the Lord is working in us, there's a necessary season of loving, kind, tender, but jealous, chastening and disciplining ahead for the church. We, as the writer of Hebrews says, we don't want to get confused in the chastening and the necessary discipline as if the father's angry at us. We want to understand that he chastens because he's committed to us. He chastens and he disciplines, not because he's mad, but because he's not looking for plan B and some other solution. He goes, no, you are the solution. I'm not going to waver on that point. I'm very committed to it. Therefore, I won't stop until you are. 
again, that's good news and bad news, depending on how you look at it. I think it's great news. But also, I, say, I saw what he did to his son. There's no price he wouldn't pay. There's, no, there's nothing that he wouldn't do. I love Corey Asbury's song, his friend. I love him. There's no mountain he wouldn't climb up to come after me isn't just to be nice to me. There's no door he wouldn't kick down isn't just to tell me I'm cool. There's no door he wouldn't kick down to bring me into the fullness of expressing Jesus to a world that needs the authentic expression of Jesus. He's going to take this to its end. He's committed to go all the way. He's not going to go find some other church. He's not going to go find some other believer. He's not going to go find a better, more faithful, more spiritual person. He's looking at you and going, I'm committed to you. I'm not going to stop. Therefore, Ephesians 4, 25 to 30. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. We are members of one another. Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? No, I'm, I'm persecuting these, this Jewish cult, this Jewish sect. No, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting me. As you kill them, you're touching me. He who gives a cup of cold water, he who visits in prison. If you've done it for the least of these, Jesus said, you've done it for me. I believe that passage in Matthew, Jesus is talking about how the unbelieving world relates to the church in the latter days. If you've done it for my brethren, the least of these, he did it to me. Paul's soul, you're persecuting me. You are members of one another. You are part of me. You're the expression of me in a very real, physical manner. You're not just unified spiritually. You are unified in me, as me, to the earth. Therefore, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not, in the way that you talk... Give place to the devil. That's the key phrase. If we are in an hour in which the acceleration button has been pushed and men are taking the earth on the direction, the course they want to go, and there's a satanic power behind what they're doing and an accusation culture is the road to get there, in your wrath, give no place to the devil. In your wrathful speech, Give no place to the evil one in how you talk when you're angry. These are urgent matters, beloved. These are urgent matters. If the accelerator button has been pushed, it's not just Sunday morning, man, yeah, I got to work on my speech. No, there's an enemy ratcheting up. We've got to go hard with urgency in the opposite spirit. We got to give no place for the evil one in our spiritual house. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But let what comes out of your mouth be that which is good and necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. We've got to have our speech filled with grace in this season. To me, that's where the chastening, the discipline of the Lord begins. It's how we talk. I talked a little bit about this last week. I won't talk about it again. 
It's 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, I long to talk to you as spiritual people, but you're acting as mere men. You're not mere men. You're people of the Spirit and intercessory and prophetic people. You are those who have the power within by the Holy Spirit to speak life, edification, and words filled with grace. Do not talk like they talk. All right, I said I'd say one unpopular thing. I'm going to say unpopular thing number two. I spent my week, because I was like you, riveted. I spent my week watching Fox News. I, I never watch Fox News, not because I'm against it. I just don't usually have time. But I spent my week with my wife watching Fox News, and I looked at her yesterday and went, how do Christians watch this all the time? Not because the content was disagreeable, but the tone was intense. I found myself cranky, <laughs> angry. Like, I was like, yeah, let's get them. I mean, they're just... <laughs> We're not mere men. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit who sees the full potential of the church and her beauty. The Holy Spirit who sees your full potential and your beauty. The Holy Spirit who is deeply committed to connect you to the deep things of God. Deeply connected to bring you into your full expression as a prophetic witness. Proclaiming the beauty of the knowledge of Jesus to a lost and dying generation. Your glory in the days ahead is in evangelism, not political activism. Your glory in the days ahead is the way in which people are going to talk about you related to mercy deeds and the way that you love the groups in Kansas City that nobody loves. They're going to talk about you related to how you love the church at her most unlovable. Pastors are going to remember that when they hated you because you spoke in tongues, you loved them right back with joy and served them. That's where the Lord wants to bring us forward as vessels of grace and mercy, our speech edifying and filled with life. The Lord who is lovingly, gently, kindly, but seriously and jealously after the chastening and the discipline of his church is saying to us kindly right now, church starts with your speech. Look at the speech of your nation, Isaiah 6. I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. I don't want to talk like they talk. I don't want to talk about, this is Isaiah's point, I don't want to talk about Messiah like they talk about Messiah. I don't want to talk about world affairs like they talk about them. I don't want to talk about the church like they do. That pastor across town that's super annoying to you has enough working against him Far be it from us to add to the pile of accusation against him. We are to fill the air with intercession rather than accusation. That's our glory in this hour. What do we do? The accelerator's been pushed. There's a global conspiracy. It's wicked, powerful, wealthy men that want to keep their wealth and their power and use it to bring the earth to an anti-God destination. What do we do? Oh, it's simple. We fill the air 
with intercession and then in the days ahead, prophecy. We fill the air with intercession. They can take our money and our reputation, but they can't take the air and the words that we speak to God. The church has a prophetic mandate for the days ahead to proclaim the mysteries of his will and the glory and the beauty of his name and will fill the air, Revelation 10, with angelic authority bestowed upon her. The church is going to be commissioned by heaven to fill the air with the knowledge of Jesus. We understand that there's a corresponding satanic strategy to fill the air with accusation, turning brethren and countrymen against one another with self-righteous zeal. All I need to do to do to you whatever I want to you, to hit your economic means, to assault you physically, if I want to be justified in this generation, all I need to do today is call you a Nazi and a racist and I can do to you whatever I want. There's already a self-righteous clearance given to certain behaviors by which I can do whatever I want. Hey, that was bad that you beat that guy up. Oh, he was a racist. Oh, thank you for your service. <laughs> self-righteous zeal connected to the accusation. It's not just that they think or I think that I'm right when I accuse. I'm convinced you're wrong. And worse, I convinced, I'm convinced I'm better than you. That's the issue of the small J, big J justice. I love that point that Mike made. We want small J because we're excited for them to get their comeuppance. We don't want big J because that's a big umbrella and we're under it. As the accuser of the brethren, Satan knows this, that the spiritual atmosphere of a region or a nation filled with intercession and prophetic proclamation leads to repentance and eternal life. We fill the air, we win. Yet accusation leads to betrayal and ultimately, Revelation 17, 6, great bloodshed. The culture of accusation that's accelerating right now is going to beget a culture of betrayal which will beget a culture of bloodshed. If you don't know the progression, you just skip right to Revelation 17, 6. You go, this is unbelievable. I don't believe that. I don't believe in this great nation, a day like this, that there could be bloodshed in America. I mean, again, they used, commentators used to say that like 10 years ago maybe 10 months ago, the, you know, they'd read Revelation, they'd go, this is so unbelievable. That worked for a while, but now people are looking for the commentators that go, hey, is there anybody out there that believes Revelation 17 that can tell us what it means? That's also really specifically to this family. That's your inheritance. Your inheritance is you're amongst that group that was super weird 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you believed the book of Revelation was actually going to happen. And 20 years ago, it was easy to be like, oh, that's that group. They read Revelation literally. Now, 2020, after last week, they're going, hey, can you help me with the book of Revelation? It's already happening. It's like, wow, history is catching up here to Jesus. 
Paul understood that it's critical for believers to refuse to grieve the Holy Spirit with our speech regarding one another. For we are members of one another. We cannot contribute to the spirit of the age. We can't align with it. We can't give any loyalty to it. We can't give any airtime to it. We cannot fill the air with lying, corrupt speech, or worse, wrathful speech that gives place to the devil in our midst, that culture of accusation. Let it be said of IHOP KC and this spiritual family. Let it be said of Forerunner Church. Let it be said of our prayer room. Let it be said of our missionaries. Let it be said of our Bible school. Let it be said that the accusation culture could not be found in their midst. So I just want to reference again the passage from last week, Ephesians 5, 25 to 32, just for a minute. It says it again, for we are members of his body. We are members of his body. He says we are his, of his flesh and we are of his bones. That's such intense language. We are of his flesh. We are of his bones. This is a great mystery. As marriage and the union between a man and a woman prophetically declares something beautiful. There is a union between man and Jesus, redeemed man, filled with the Holy Spirit and Jesus. There is a union with him that leads to a union with one another that Paul has revelation of. Therefore, he takes who we would consider the least of these very seriously, not just because we want to have compassion. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, this church, you know, sometimes there's the least of these among us, and wow, this is a church with compassion. No, Paul goes, it's not a compassion issue on who you consider to be the least important or the lesser than. It's not a compassion issue. It's a revelation issue. It's not having compassion on the brother that's bad at speaking and not as gifted as you think he should be. Not as able to be helpful. Because we're so American that way. We, we kind of look at one another and we gauge one another on the ability of the other person to help our world be better. Are they gifted? Are they capable? Well, that person's, you know, they're not that gifted. Paul goes, this isn't about compassion for the ungifted. This is about revelation for how necessary they are. As those who are of his flesh and of his bones. We are one member. of We are members of one body. We are are unified in a way that's beyond what we grasp. And here's the key. How we see one another by grace and revelation will determine how we speak to and about one another. There's a direct correlation. It's not just avoid these kinds of speech patterns. It's not just don't talk this way. It's, hey, now that you're abstaining from, here's what we're reaching for. We're going to step into our destiny and our assignment and our glory when we have Paul's revelation of the unity of the body as members of his body. We are members, his flesh, his bones. When we see that and grasp that, the way that Paul did, now we're looking at each other differently. We're not just looking at one another as, hey, what can we do together to get it done? We're looking at one another going, no, for real. I, we can't do this without you. We can't do this without you. 
We have to love you. We have to love one another. We have to value one another. We have to fight one another and fight for one another. It's not just a cool encounter we had two years ago as a spiritual family. We have to do this. We can't do this without you. Well, brother, you know, people talk that way, but then, you know, out of sight, out of mind. No, 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 It's not about how good I am at doing it as a leader. It's not about how good you are at doing it. We got to get out of this accidentally passive way in which we delegate the way we do family to somebody else. They're just not good at it here. They just, you know, they, they, they say this, but then they do that. It's like, no, let's do this. Hey, this isn't about us doing friendship groups slightly better. This isn't about us being slightly better friends to one another or slightly better coworkers with one another. This is about uh, a deficiency of revelation by which we are seeing one another wrongly according to the flesh, carnal-mindedly, and it's costing us related to how we talk about one another. The person that you're standing in front of when this service is over is the most important person in the room to Jesus. Because he died, put his spirit in them, and then joined them to you. Like you're joined forever in him, through him, with one another. This is, for Paul, our way forward. How we see one another by grace. How we see the church is central to God's plan. How we see one another related to the church. How we see one another. And then as we see that in one another in a local fellowship, we begin to see the churches across the city that way. And we start feeling, you know what? I can't do this without you. Well, brother, that church, you should hear what they say about you. Man, they don't like you know, that you're this and they don't like you speaking tongues and they don't like these three things and they don't think that you're this enough. You know, none of that defines our relationship. Their opinion does not define our relationship. The indwelling Holy Spirit does. They are of his flesh and of his bones. Jesus defined in the most powerful way possible how I am to see and relate with them. He didn't give me options. In the same way that Jesus has no plan B related to the future of the church and your place in it, now he's looking at you going, do you have a plan B? Well, that church wasn't really doing it for me, so I went down to this church. Well, T minus 10, you're lacking revelation on the church, so therefore no church is going to satisfy. It's not about whether they did it. Whatever it was that you needed them to do that they didn't do, that is not the narrative of the hour. The narrative of the hour is we're all weak and deficient, but in the same manner that Jesus has no plan B. He's not looking at our weakness going, well, where's the other company of faithful? To the same measure, he's going, no, church, you need that revelation as well so that you don't have a plan B with one another when it gets funny. The way we do plan B, we might not do the church hopping thing. Maybe we've tried about 10 churches in Kansas City, and we kind of we came back here like... Well, I tried 10 other churches. I guess this is the one. I mean, 
So now that we're stuck with one another, we don't do active plan B, which is go somewhere else. We do passive aggressive plan B, which is avoidance. We just build our narrative of accusation. We justify it in our soul. We dismiss and diminish. And we just kind of stay over here hoping to never run into them over there. What's that? Mike's not preaching today. Sliker's preaching. Bennett's preaching. Well, I am of Bennett. Not me. I am of Sliker. No, I am of Bickle. Where's Tracy Bickle? I am of Tracy Bickle. Paul goes, that is very carnal. That is very carnal because we're reducing one another to the bringer of the kinds of messages I like to hear. Paul warned the believers in Corinth of the dangers of not discerning or seeing the reality of being the literal, unified, physical body of Jesus on earth. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. We can't. We we've got to get out of the independent, immature, self centered way.